of Jesus in chronological order and uh, just really a handful of weeks away from finishing this this study of our Savior and every week so rich and this week included John chapter 20 verse 19. Then the same day at evening, that is the day of Jesus's resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word from Genesis to Revelation. A revelation of you, Lord. We love coming to know more and more about your heart, about your priorities, what's important to you, Lord, what isn't important to you. The more we know about you, Lord, the better we know you, and the better we know you, the deeper our relationship with you, and that's what means everything to us. So we pray, Lord, in the context of our relationship with you, that you would open up this passage by your Holy Spirit and take us deeper in that relationship. Whatever is on your heart, whatever is on your mind, whatever is important to you is supremely important to us. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would come fresh upon us this morning, that he would supply us with supernatural ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us through this passage. Continue to fashion us, as has already been prayed this morning, into the image of our beautiful, wonderful Savior, into the image of Christ now as we continue to worship you in the study of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, we have the Holy Spirit's resurrect, uh, uh, record of one of Jesus' several post-resurrection appearances. We're told in verse 19 that these events occurred in the evening of the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. So here we have biblical evidence for a Sunday night service right here in the Bible. And what you could potentially miss if you don't come to the Sunday night Bible study. Anytime two or more are assembled together, there's no telling what the Holy Spirit's going to do in our midst. And so, funda recognize that about this evening. It's important, or that evening 2,000 years ago. It's important to the Holy Spirit that we notice the condition of the disciples at the time of this appearance of Jesus to them. Physically, we're told that they were in a room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. We don't know what room it was or what house they were in. It isn't inconceivable that they had returned to what is known as the upper room, where on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, now three days earlier from this event, Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper with them. You remember he had washed their uh, feet and he had spoken to them about the events that were right around the corner. And so it isn't unlikely that they, uh, when things began to get difficult and Jesus ended up being crucified, that they knew to go back uh, to that room. It's important to know who was present in that room to understand this passage. The ten apostles are there. So minus Thomas, who we'll talk about next week, and also minus Judas, who had disqualified himself. But also, we're told in Luke's gospel, there were other disciples, other followers of Jesus, and also the two disciples that had made a beeline from the city of Emmaus following 
their conversation with Jesus to come to Jerusalem and let them know that they had come into contact with the risen Lord. So these are the this is the broad mix of people that are clustered in that room. Luke's gospel for you note takers, chapter 24, verse 33. And so speaking of the two uh, that walked to Emmaus with Jesus, so they rose up following him, revealing himself to them that very hour, returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. So they were so excited to bring this news of the resurrection. Boy, they huffing and puffing, they came and entered into that room. Now, that room is a fascinating room because it's been a hub of activity all day long, the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's kind of like when you watch the news and they've got like a breaking news story and Somebody is on a camera and they're talking about this and they just get a new report and they talk about this now. And the whole story is developing even faster than their ability to keep up with it. And the reports of Jesus' resurrection from the dead are coming into that room and to those disciples one after another. Mary Magdalene, as she had gone with some of the other women that morning to the tomb the Sunday morning, intending to find a a dead Jesus to further anoint his body. She goes there, discovers an angel who is there, who has a conversation with her, speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, rolls the stone away from the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to let her in to see the evidence of his resurrection. She runs back here, tells them, the disciples, what's going on. Peter and John then run from that room to the tomb to discover everything exactly as Mary had reported it. Jesus not in the tomb, but resurrected. Then Jesus, we're told, appeared privately to Peter. Now these two very excited disciples have come all the way from Emmaus now, uh, seven Uh, miles away in the dark now to bring this report uh, to them, the same report of Jesus' resurrection. And yet, for all of the excitement, we would look at this and they would think they're all in there just uh, giddy, you know, having Martinelli's uh, sparkling apple cider or something and toasting and having a wonderful time in there over all of these reports and being excited. But they aren't excited at all. In fact, we're told... One single great emotion dominates the entire room and the great single emotion that dominates their hearts and dominates the entire room is the emotion of fear. There was fear, fear, every single person fearful and and more fear, a fear that was so great that they had secured the doors to the room and kept them shut so that nobody could get in and nobody would know that they were uh, in the room. And so they've secured the room as best as they can. And what was the cause for their fear? The Jewish religious leaders. They figured in their minds, if the Jewish religious leaders were so bold and had been so successful in manipulating the whole situation there in Jerusalem to the point that Jesus ended up crucified, then wouldn't it be an even easier thing for them to do to go to Roman officials or to take it into their own hands if they've gone so far as wanting to stamp out Christianity as to uh, kill and crucify uh, the head of it, the Lord of it, then wouldn't it make sense that they'll quickly, if they want to tear it out by the roots, find the leaders of that particular organization and kill them as well? And so this is what they anticipated would be coming their way. At any moment, there would be a storming through the doors. They would be arrested and potentially put to death themselves. And so they're hiding for their lives. I don't know how many of you have ever hid for your life. But it's a big deal, even if we've never done it, we can put ourselves in their shoes to feel that, Any discovery of our existence is going to mean the death of us. And so every time there's movement outside, every time there's something that touches the door, every time there's any kind of a conversation happening outside the door, there's the sidelong glances and the wondering whether they've been discovered and, and will they be taken to their deaths. They don't know who's at the door, whether it's friend or whether it's foe. And they've been locked away like this for three days since the day of Jesus' crucifixion. 
And, and when most of them had abandoned Jesus, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and later crucified, and they fled for their own lives. And so this is their emotional condition in the room. Spiritually, they're at a very, very low place as well, because the reports of Jesus' resurrection aren't even making a dent in their fear. It's having no impact upon them spiritually. It's not producing any faith in them uh, spiritually. Despite all the times that Jesus had spoken to them on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified, he had told them repeatedly, we're going to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to arrest me. They are going to physically abuse me. I will end up crucified, but it's not the end of the story. I will rise again on the third day. They are living as if Jesus never spoke that promise to them. And, and so this is, this is uh, where they are, and, and, and the fear is unabated despite Jesus' encouragement and despite all of the events lining up with what he had said would be the case. And so that's their physical, their emotional, their spiritual condition and the physical and the emotional and spiritual atmosphere when Jesus enters into that room. That would have been a miserable room to be in. Just just miserable to be in in that place in in their condition. And yet Jesus then appears, we're told, in verses 19 and 20 to the disciples in that room. And of Jesus's access, verse 19, to the room, we're told that he simply came and he stood in the midst of them. So the doors closed, everything secured. It wasn't like um, they heard the door creak open and not see anybody come in and then close. Jesus, there's no doors, there's no huffing, puffing, blowing doors down. There's nothing like that. He's just in the middle of the room. We don't even know how long he was there before he just uh, gave them the ability to see him there. And so he, he simply was suddenly standing in their midst. One moment he's invisible, the next moment he's visible, just miraculously, just like that. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, and this is more than technical knowledge, this is something that should excite all of us. After Jesus' resurrection, his body maintained the same structure and the same appearance. You knew it was, it, it, it it was Jesus. It was the same appearance, the same structure as before. It was still a physical body. But following his resurrection, it's now changed in its uh, essential substance in some way. It's now a supernaturalized body that is made for the earth and was made also uh, for uh, heaven. You remember when he was in the tomb at the time of his resurrection, when they rolled the stone back to reveal his resurrection, there's his grave cloths in a pile. He did not unwrap himself when he resurrected from the dead. It was simply he came out from the grave close. They collapsed now without a body being there. And and so this was his ability. When the angel rolled the stone away, again, not to let Jesus out, he had gotten out of that place a lot earlier than that. It was to reveal that he was no longer there. He was resurrected, left that tomb without a stone ever needing to be rolled away. No need for an entrance, no need uh, for any kind of, of an exit. And so he enters then this room without passing through an open door. And he could appear anywhere he wanted. He could disappear uh, at will. And the reason that all of this is fascinating is the Bible teaches that one day when we are in heaven, that we will possess that kind of a body. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, speaking to us as Christians, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed at the rapture, we will be like him, for we will, shall see him as he is. And imagine with this new body that waits for us, that is um, prepared, it's made for heaven as well as for earth. And imagine being able to be one place at one moment and then in a moment later be someplace else entirely, maybe on the other side of the world. No more planes, 
No more jammed into that little coach seat. And it's full all over again. And the guy next to you has got tuberculosis, but he wanted to make that flight. And he hasn't stopped coughing the entire time. Or the kids are just crying like crazy. I look at them and I think, oh, good, somebody's more miserable than me. I don't really think that, but I have pity on them because they are more miserable than me. And I have even more pity on their parents who are having to keep children tended to on that little cylinder, that little can in the sky. I'm thankful for it, but I'm also creates appreciation me for one day. We won't require those kind of things. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. You think your body's all hot? It's a lowly body, and time is going to reveal that to you. You'll be excited about the rapture before this is all over with, with your body. Who will transform your lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to uh, himself. And so one more reason to say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Now, notice the first words out of Jesus' mouth toward them. He declared to them, peace be with you. In other words, shalom. He pronounces the Jewish greeting of peace upon them. So. After their forsaking of Jesus at the time of his arrest, they just go in all directions. You put yourself in the place of the disciples and they're hearing the report of Jesus's resurrection. I mean, an app, a gap of 2000 years makes us very excited that he appears to them. But we didn't betray him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We didn't run away from him. When he needed us most. So they might have been wondering in all of this. All right, we're hearing reports of the fact that he's risen from the dead. I wonder what kind of mood he is in over the fact that we all left him and only the women stayed faithful to him all the way through his crucifixion. And you would have perhaps expected Jesus to show up in that room and say, what happened to the big, brave men? That I called to be the apostles of the church here and get the one time I need you. I don't need you for three and a half years. Need you one time and the one time I need you, you scatter off to save your own skin. That's not what he said. Otherwise, we'd be afraid to approach Jesus every time we sinned. So he comes in. He knows we're but dust. And so he pronounces his peace upon them. Everything is under control, is what he's communicating. And his resurrection revealed to them that those Jewish religious leaders, they weren't to be feared. They weren't in control of God's plan or in control of anything. But that everything was under Jesus' control. And then he showed them, verse 20, his hands and his sides, the wounds of his of his crucifixion there at Calvary. And, of course, those wounds would have uniquely identified him for who he was. We know that Luke's gospel, in a parallel account related to all of this, that Jesus' appearance when he first appeared in the room, that it left them stunned and it left them literally terrified. They thought they were seeing a phantom. They thought they were seeing a ghost in the room. And so showing them the wounds in his side and the wound in his side, the wounds in his hand was intended to let them know that it was really him. Luke's gospel also tells us that he asked for food to eat and they gave him some dried fish and they gave him some honeycomb to eat. Some little protein, little dessert. All right. So they're not starving in that room. So they got a little bit of food. Jesus ate that. In order to communicate to them that he was bodily resurrected, that he wasn't a spirit. A spirit doesn't eat that way. It doesn't digest. It doesn't. Another characteristic of of that that body. And so all of it is a further evidence of his 
bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, their response to his presence and to his words then gave way, we're told in verse 20, to gladness and to joy. Can you imagine the joy that must have filled their heart at that moment? He's greeted them with peace. He is alive. This man, this Lord that we've been with for three and a half years, what a miserable three days it's been following his death. And here he is alive. And the swing of emotions must have just been massive from believing him to be dead to now knowing him to be alive. I suppose the only thing that uh, approaches it today in life is every once in a while you'll read in the news or something where uh, someone will do a uh, will uh, do a death notification to a family, maybe to a, a mother, or father related to a child or maybe uh, concerning a husband to a wife or vice versa. And they'll come and they'll then declare the news and the heartbreaking news of the death of a loved one. And boy, everything just implodes emotionally there on that scene. And then every once in a while, somebody gets it wrong, didn't dot the I's and cross the T's, found that they got to the wrong house or some kind of a deal like that. And then it's reported to those same people that know your loved one is not dead, but indeed alive. And then all and then everything swings in the opposite direction. I mean, you just can't have emotions swing more fully than what happens there in that room as they see uh, uh, Jesus here. He's right here. He's alive. He hadn't been defeated. They hadn't been deceived. And then it's fascinating that, you know, you would think that Jesus would have just engaged in like a group hug and the snapshot of all of that would have just ended right there in terms of the passage. But it doesn't. And this is where the the instructive side of, of the passage, even more so, uh, comes to, to bear upon us as Christians. Jesus, once they once they knew that, that he was alive and that he was risen from the dead, once they had become witnesses of his resurrection and they've now experienced the peace, the joy, the gladness that comes with knowing about his death, his burial, his resurrection, Jesus now speaks to them, but his attention moves supremely from them to the world, the world that they've barricaded themselves off from. He turns their attention to a lost world, which he knew was now waiting to hear the same good news of his resurrection, the same joyous, peace producing news for themselves. And so Jesus then commissions them to do exactly that. And he commissions them to go out into the world to inform the world of the fact that God is a forgiving God and wants to personally forgive them as they would put their faith in Jesus. And so he commissions them, stating four things to them in verses 21 through 23. Again, he declares to them, peace to you. In other words, shalom be upon you. Enjoy that. Enjoy the peace. Enjoy the joy. Feel all of that. Enjoy this moment. Absorb all of it. Don't forget what you're feeling here in this room. But don't keep that peace, that feeling to yourself. In verse 21, he says, as the father has sent me, I also send you. God's work of salvation in the world has two parts. The first part, the biggest part, of course, has to do with Jesus, who came into the world, died on the cross in order to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, just as the scriptures had declared, and to demonstrate his authority over death and to demonstrate the veracity or the truthfulness of everything that he had said prior to that death and that burial and that resurrection. And so God's work of salvation, the first part was the sending of Jesus into the world to provide man with forgiveness through faith in Jesus's death, burial and resurrection. By far the greatest and most important part. But there is a second part to it as well. And it involves each of us as Christians. So it has me on the edge of my seat. What do you mean? 
The second part of it is has to do with us now carrying the good news that God is a forgiving God and that God wants to forgive every single person of their sins to now carry that news of salvation and forgiveness to the rest of the world. You see, the disciples in that closed room, they now have all kinds of peace, they have all kinds of joy, all kinds of gladness. But what about the rest of the world? And Jesus is as concerned that they have the ability to be saved as he was concerned about the salvation of the apostles. And he wants us to enjoy the peace that comes with believing on him for the forgiveness of our sins. But he wants us also to share it with others. The funny thing about religion uh, today, and I remember my first exposure to uh, people's discomfort with religion was when I was uh, just a little guy, probably early second remember is probably seven or eight years old at the Style Right Barbershop, Napa, California. Probably about 1962 or 63. It's long gone, trust me. But the Style Right Barbershop down there, I'd go get my hair cut. And if they didn't cut it short enough, my dad brought me down there again. And they cut it to his liking. But anyway, we were in there. And they had a rule in that barbershop. I never really understood it too much. But they had a rule. And there were three subjects that were absolutely in it. The place is always jammed. Always people sitting in the seats to get, get their hair cut there. It, after all, it was called Style Right Barbershop. You know. But they said that the forbidden subjects were God, religion, politics, and I've forgotten what the third one was. I don't think it was women because a lot of that went on in the room. I know gossip wasn't forbidden because tons of that went on in that room. Little seven-year-old boy. (laughs) Wow. Who needs today's television? But anyway, enough about my childhood. So it was kind of forbidden. And the idea is one that I was exposed to early in life. And, of course, you come into contact with it the older you get. And that is that religion, we're told, is a very personal thing. You don't make it a public thing. You keep it to yourself and have it change your life. But you don't speak about it ever. And the funny thing that can happen for us as Christians is we can begin to buy into that whole attitude. Well, maybe other people don't know that what they're calling the truth is truth in the way that we do. So you can sit on it and be silent. Maybe their lives haven't been changed by their religion in the way that our lives have been changed. Maybe they don't have the same kind of God that we have, and certainly they don't. But you can't keep this stuff a secret. And God never intended for any Christian to sit on the joy, the blessings, the gladness, all of this related to their Christian faith, and then never tell another single person about where that came from and came into our lives and how they can access it for themselves, the joy of our salvation. And so God doesn't know anything about, the God of the Bible doesn't know anything about this, keep your religion secret. Jesus doesn't know anything about it related to his disciples. If God had, what if God had said, all right, I want to save the whole world. But you know, this whole religion thing is a pretty private affair. What if he'd never been a missionary God and never sent Jesus into the world? We'd be in a real mess. But he is a missionary God. And he does speak about salvation and he does come to us individually and he lets us know the truth so we can do the right thing with it. And so to be like him is going to be like that. It isn't going to be to go silent with our faith, enjoy all of the blessings of it and say, well, to hell with the rest of the world. I mean, that's not my problem. That's not how it works. And so he commissions uh, them here. That doesn't mean that we take and we corner people. And uh, against their will, okay, good, I got them in the car here. <laughs> got the kid locks on there. Put them in the back door seat just for the case. All right, now I'm going to tell Jesus never forced himself on a single person, but he spoke the truth. He was faithful to the leading of the Holy Spirit and the prompting of the Spirit in every environment. Whether people listened to it or they didn't listen to it, that was their business. But he always spoke the truth. 
So we don't force anything down people's throats. We don't corner them. We don't abuse them. We don't take advantage of them. There are plenty of opportunities in life to come alongside the brokenhearted or the guilty or the downcast or the searching or in all kinds of conversations and to let people know there's forgiveness in the God of the Bible. We don't have to huff and puff and blow doors down just to be heed the Holy Spirit and use the opportunities that he gives to us. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, the third thing that he did of the four things is he then gave them the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't send them out to do all of this alone. He breathed on them, we're told in verse 22. He imparted the Holy Spirit to them with the words, receive the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit came into their lives in that room as, as fully and as really as he came into our lives as Christians on the day that we were born again. And everything changed when that happened. Now, to be commissioned by someone to do something means, number one, we begin a, we've been given a task to perform. And then number two, we have been provided with the authority to perform that particular task. And so here is their authority, the authority of the Holy Spirit. It's our authority as well. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives. So the Holy Spirit provided them with the authority to carry out the commission that Jesus was calling them to, which raises the question, what in the world is the commission? And he stated it in verse 23. Notice it again. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. They are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, as Jesus' disciples, we've been given this great task, this great, great privilege of letting people know that God is a forgiving God. That God desires to forgive them. To forgive people of their sins. And that that forgiveness is available to them. Because of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And all of the peace and all of the gladness and all of the joy and all of the blessing that comes with God's forgiveness. Are you glad you're forgiven this morning, those of you who are Christians? Let me just click my little heels. I can't believe I'm forgiven. I'm so thankful every day that I'm forgiven of my sin. So it's a great, great blessing to be forgiven of our sins. And because we've been forgiven, we understand, we enjoy on a daily basis the blessing of life in a forgiven condition, then we have this desire that everyone in the world would experience that. Can't live with ourselves if we kept this completely to ourselves. Now, when Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let me just talk, first of all, about what that cannot mean. It can't mean that Jesus has given us as Christians the power to forgive sins or to retain sins at our whim. We can't go to the mall. I forgive you. I don't forgive you. You are forgiven. You are not forgiven. We don't have that kind of freedom. I'd like that. <laughs> but they think we'd a kook and they'd arrest us at the mall. But some people have the idea that that's the kind of authority that we've been given. And we don't have that kind of authority because that would be a direct contradiction of the Bible's teaching that only God can ultimately and finally forgive sins. Jesus was, during his public ministry, he was teaching in somebody's home. It was dangerous to open your home up to Jesus to teach him because it meant a big crowd was going to come. And, and people were hungry for his power, hungry for his teaching. So he's teaching in this home. The place is just jammed. Out the windows, out the doors. As far as, you can't even get as far as his voice can carry. People are there. There's these four men that got a friend who's a paralytic. And they bring him for Jesus. They want Jesus to heal him. They can't even get even remotely near the door, let alone into the room. But they wouldn't be dissuaded by that. They went up on the roof of the house, estimated where Jesus was sitting in the house, removed the tiles from the roof. You better have some insurance. 
And they proceeded to lower this man on his bed or on his mat, the four of them, right down through the opening, right in front of Jesus in that room. And then Jesus proceeded to declare to that man, to that paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. Well, the religious leaders that were in the room, they were aghast instantly. And they said to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone, which was precisely the point that Jesus was making, was that he was God, God the Son, and able to forgive sins. And then, in order to demonstrate that he could not only speak of the forgiveness of sins, but that he had the power and the authority to do it. He then spoke to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he rose up, he rolled up his mat and he went home as an evidence of the fact that he, as God and only God can forgive sins. Now, some people believe that Jesus was giving like a special authority to the apostles to forgive here. And then they'll lay a case for the fact that they have the same spiritual authority because they're of the same spiritual kind of lineage of the apostles, that that authority has been given to them now in their particular uh, sect within Christianity. And uh, so they will then uh, claim that they have the rights to demand that you do certain acts of penance uh, in order to receive the forgiveness of God. And if you don't do them, you don't receive the forgiveness of God. Uh, Roman Catholicism is famous for this. I've prayed. I, I can pray a Hail Mary and an Our Father like grease lightning. And uh, I prayed so many of them as I would go to confession. This is what you need to do in order to receive the forgiveness. If you don't, blah, blah, blah. And so many people coming into confession on Saturdays in order to receive, uh, uh, you know, the host the next day and and all and so this is the this is the kind of thing that goes on even to this day this i this view that some select group of people have the ability to bestow forgiveness uh, by virtue of office or history and that others uh, uh, do not or they misunderstand what it is that Jesus is saying here. And a typical Roman Catholic priest is going to understand himself to be uh, in, in full uh, alignment with verse 23 in, in all of his activities as he does that. One of the problems with that view, though, is that Jesus spoke this to more than the disciples. And that's why I mentioned it earlier. There, there are more than the apostles. There's not just apostles in that room. There are regular Christians in that room as well, as well as the two that had come from Emmaus. So you had apostles, you had non-apostles. You've got every kind of person uh, in that room. He, Jesus is whoever he's speaking to and whatever he is speaking here applies to all disciples, not to some special group. And Peter, who was present in the room, certainly understood uh, that he did not have the ability to in and of himself forgive sins or not forgive sins. And if he did, would it even amount to anything? He understood Jesus to be uh, what Jesus was communicating uh, here, that he had the authority to deliver the gospel to people, the uh, means of forgiveness from God by believing in Jesus and then what a person did with that gospel if they believed in it then the authority to say you are forgiven of your sins if they rejected the gospel then to speak to them and say we are not you are not forgiven of your sins by God and the judgment that your sins deserve rests still upon your head in Acts chapter 9 uh, verse 39 Peter uh, went and he preached salvation to the household of a Gentile by the na name of Cornelius. And he declared to this, these Gentiles, as they're going to become born again by virtue of his preaching, he said, and we are witnesses of all things which he did, speaking of Jesus, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets witness that through his name. 
Whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sin. He preached the gospel and declared to them that forgiveness is received by faith in Christ. And so what Jesus is telling us here, disciples then, disciples now, is to go out into the world, preach the gospel of the forgiveness and salvation that is found in Christ by trusting in him for salvation. And with Jesus's authority, we can declare to those who do trust in Jesus that, again, they are forgiven by God. We are then have the same authority by God to declare to those who reject the gospel and God's forgiveness in Christ that, again, they are not forgiven and that the eternal judgment that's due their sin hangs over them. And so we continue, essentially, the work of the Savior, not in the sense of providing salvation, but in, like him, letting the whole world know of his desire to save people and to forgive them from their sins. Some people don't like the way they say, well, um, can we just go and tell people that God offers them forgiveness and then if they receive that forgiveness, tell them that they're forgiven? I mean, we have to really tell people that, that if they reject that, that their sins are forgiven and the judgment hangs still upon their head. Sometimes people that that don't know the Lord yet, they look at that and they say, you know, that's just that's so negative. It's just a negative thing. Come in and tell me my I'm not forgiven and and the sin is is on my head. And and I think you ought to be a little more positive than this. And you shouldn't bring the negative part of that message. Well, um, if you really don't like negative, uh, then you're going to want to put your faith in Christ because hell is a very negative place. And it's going to be negative for eternity. There is nothing positive about hell, not for a moment. And so the responsibility is to put forth the truth. Forgiveness is found here. Forgiveness is found in faith in Christ. But there is a serious repercussion to rejecting the salvation that God has provided. And we see all the way through the New Testament that this was the understanding of the disciples, the understanding of the apostles. The apostle Peter, again, he was true to this commission as he declared to the Jewish Uh, Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. He's been pulled in there with the other apostles because of a man that had been healed and he preached Jesus as a result of it and people are getting saved right and left. And so we're told that Peter then, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle John understood what Jesus was saying here, and he was true to it when he wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. He said, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. John is being perfectly faithful to Jesus' command here in John chapter 20. John the Baptist even declared of Jesus, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The writer of the book of Hebrews was true to it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment 
and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And then, of course, all of this is completely consistent with Jesus' life in his ministry as he declared to a man by the name of Nicodemus concerning uh, salvation in John chapter 3. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed the name of the only begotten of the Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now let me close with a couple of applications this morning. This passage is very important uh, to us and for us as Christians because it's important for us to be reminded. And perhaps the longer we walk with the Lord, the greater the need for the reminder. It's important for us as Christians to be reminded of the fact that everyone in this world has a right to hear about the forgiveness of sins that is found through faith in Christ. And who else is going to tell them about this forgiving God and the way to receive forgiveness but Christians? We can't hire it out. Can't hire this commission out. It's something that we're either going to carry the message and let people know or, or they aren't going to know And I think that all of us as Christians, and I know you feel the same way that I do, and I certainly feel it is kind of a weight. It's a wonderful weight, a needed weight upon my life. But I feel that because somebody told me I have a responsibility to tell others. Somebody told me of the forgiveness of God and gave me that option of receiving that forgiveness, that news, that invitation from God, or rejecting it. Somebody, it cost them something to speak that gospel to me. I think in a room like this, and maybe just get a show of hands, how many of you, from the family that you come from, the background that you come from, in your job, in your place of education, in your whatever in life, for those of you who are Christians, where you came from, where everybody in the whole world, yourself included, looked at you and said, that person will never be a Christian. How many of you would consider yourself to be in that category? Raise your hand when you came to know the Lord. So many in the room. And those of you who are in that place, but it's true of all of us, somebody risked, in some cases, everything in terms of the friendship, in terms of the relationship, and so much more out of a love and a concern for us and a love for God to tell us that truth. And then for us, is the the disciples here in, in the Proneness is they're enjoying all of this peace, all of this excitement, all of this joy. There's no way that we can enjoy the blessings of this forgiven life and then watch the whole world walk by and not be sure whether they know that 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 they can access that forgiveness as well. We just simply couldn't live with ourselves indwelt by the Holy Spirit if we did that. And so we can't make anyone. Our part is just to let people know about the forgiveness of God and how to access that through faith in Christ. That's our part. What a person does with that knowledge, that's between them and the Lord. There's nothing we can do uh, with that. That happens between a person and God. We can't force anyone to receive God's forgiveness. Just cannot do it. I would love to do it and can't. God can do it and he won't. A person has to decide for themselves whether they're going to receive this into their lives. But as we let people know of God's forgiveness and how to access it through faith in Christ, then we leave it in the hands of a very, very capable Holy Spirit. Let me close with a story that I heard Walter Martin tell years and years and years ago when I was a new Christian. 
Some of you may not know Walter Martin. He was one of the great apologists of the last century, and he was the original Bible answer man. This guy knew the Bible. He, he, he knew the Bible inside and out. I don't know how much of it he had memorized, but he also knew the Book of Mormon inside and out. He knew the Jehovah Witness Bible inside and out. He knew Doctrine and Covenants inside and out. He knew the Pearl of Great Price inside and out. He knew Hinduism inside and out. He knew Islam inside and out. He knew everything inside and out, and he could quote it all right off the top of his head on the base of these phone calls that were coming in. God gave him a tremendous mind and a tremendous ministry, and I was glad uh, to, to be able to be exposed to that, though it was late in his life. He was turning things over early in my Christian life. But I remember him telling a story of uh, meetings he would have in addition to his radio program where on the weekends he would go to churches and he would speak maybe on some non-Christian religion as it compared to Christianity or on a non-Christian cult. That is something that calls itself Christian but is not actually Christian. So he would address these subjects and of course it's of great interest to people and very controversial as well for those that are in those religions but consider them to be Christian and they are not. So typically he was speaking to just absolutely jam-packed full houses at the end of his presentation whatever it might be he would always have a time where he would open it up for people to ask questions but only to ask questions he never opened the floor up for someone to give a speech on the basis of what he had just said he wouldn't turn over the control of the room anyone could pose a question and he would answer the question he deviated from his policy one time and i think it was in the midwest in a church where he was holding a meeting and a man stood up and he asked Walter Martin for permission to not to pose a question, but to share something with him that he thought would be a blessing to Walter Martin and to the audience that was there as well. He spoke of how when Walter Martin was beginning his ministry, he knew as he came out of college, God was calling him to this apologetic kind of ministry and that there was the potential for his name to become very well known and that there would be come a time where he might not be able to access some of these uh, false religious uh, systems, their headquarters, ask questions, that kind of thing. And so he figured fresh out of college, he would go and, and access them because he'd probably be barred entry later on, which is probably true. So right out of college, he goes to New York City. He was in New York City, and he decided to go to the Watchtower headquarters, which was in Brooklyn, New York there, and uh, which is the headquarters of Jehovah Witnesses. And so he went in, got the whole tour, saw everything, talked, chatted all the way through the whole thing, and he's about to leave. And he stops at the desk where the man that was at the entrance of the building was sitting at the desk. And Walter Martin went up to him and said, if I could show you in the Bible where Jesus declared himself to be God, would you believe it? Because the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God or divine. The man said, that's not in the Bible. Well, he didn't know Walter Martin. Walter Martin said, that's not the question I asked you. I asked you if I could show you in the Bible where Jesus himself declared himself to be divine, to be God, would you believe it? That's not in the Bible. That's not the question I'm posing to you. The question I'm posing to you. This is the man relating the story. He said, the question I pose to you is, if I could show you where Jesus himself declared himself to be God in the Bible, would you believe it? And, and the man said, well, I, I, I guess I would have to believe it, but it's not there. Walter Martin then turned him to Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus is speaking in chapter 1, and he proceeded to pound on the man's desk while he read it and quoted it, where Jesus was declaring, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. And the, Lord, and the man refused to believe it, even though he saw it with his own eyes. He said, you might want to know the rest of the story. He said, I went home that night and I tried to go to sleep that night and I put my head down on the pillow. And all I could hear was you pounding on the desk. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he said, I couldn't ignore it. I got down on my knees and I put my faith in Jesus for salvation. He said that was 30 years earlier and I've been serving the Lord ever since. Walter Martin had 
a, a absolute confidence, maybe because of his own life, in the work of the Holy Spirit in any life that that message was delivered to. That if people would hear the gospel, hear the offer of forgiveness, that the Holy Spirit would then take that where it needed to go in a human life. And the Holy Spirit is very, very good at doing his end of all of this. But it doesn't remove us, our very important place in all of this. And that is to let people know of the fact that the God of the Bible is a forgiving God and that he wants to forgive them. It's important for us to realize as Christians, because there is a great temptation. This passage is separated from us by 2000 years, but but not related to to us seeing ourselves in there. It's a great temptation for us, whether on by personality or whatever it might be, to take and lock ourselves behind closed doors and just forget about the whole world. I've got the risen Christ. I'm saved. I'm on my way there. I've got the joy. I've got the peace. I've got the whole thing. And Jesus obviously looked at this thing and said, this is going to be a temptation to these people. And so he commissions them to take the news that had changed their life and then to speak it to other people. And it happens very, very easily in our Christian life where we just simply stop having a concern for the lost. And then we go silent and we say, well, we'll leave it up to somebody else or we'll leave it up entirely to the Holy Spirit, not realizing that we have a part in this. And it's just a matter of coming to a passage like this kind of passage and then saying to the Lord, Lord, and this certainly isn't true of everyone, but if we've drifted away from this, of waking up in the morning with an expectation, Lord, would you open up a door and give me an opportunity to share with someone that you're a forgiving God and that you'll forgive them. Somebody in the midst of their need or some conversation or some circumstance in their life. And then to ask for the strength and the boldness to step through that door when it's given. Again, very rarely do you have to huff and puff and blow a door down. It's just happening all around us with that kind of sensitivity. And people are, are, have... Are, a right to know this about God, and it's been entrusted uh, to us to deliver it to them. And the fact that you and I are in a room right now, this like this in a church, and we're not in heaven yet, we're not raptured yet, is because the fullness of the Gentiles isn't in yet. The full number of those that are going to be saved before the rapture of the church, many will be saved following the rapture, but... There's going to be someday, maybe in India, maybe in Empire, maybe in Escalon, maybe someplace. Somebody's going to accept the Lord as their savior. It's going to be the final person that God knows is going to accept the Lord before the rapture of the church. And we're going to be out of here. But the fact that we sit in this room here today, it communicates to you. It communicates to me that there are still people in this city and in this world that don't know the offer of God's forgiveness. And when they hear it, they will take him up on that. And so the commission is a living commission. It's an open commission. It's our commission even today. And it's good for us to be reminded of this. Everyone has a right to hear. Someone paid a price for us to hear. Somebody stayed sensitive and obedient to the Lord for us to hear. And now it's our place to step up and to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives likewise. Not a big guilt thing. Not a, well, it's, a, it's a responsibility thing. It just really is. So we don't just, you know, weasel out of it or anything like that. And there's a weasel in me. And there's a weasel in you. But the Holy Spirit's bigger than that weasel. And just, just step up and say, Lord, I want to be a part of this. This, this thing. I have... I, 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 Glory, I glory in the, the fact that somebody let me know this truth about you. And now I want to deliver that news to others as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Jesus, thank you so much. You, 
I don't say that it speaks for everyone, but it speaks for a lot of us, Lord. The capacity in our flesh, not in you, but in our flesh, to enjoy the unspeakable riches of Christ, the indescribable beauty of this Christian life, including its forgiveness, and then to fail to tell anybody else about it, Lord. We see the capacity for it in the disciples. We see the same capacity in us. And Lord, we pray that under the weight and power and strength of this passage and your heart revealed in it, that you would just break that off of any of our lives and that you would return us as is necessary and for some, Lord, to bring for the first time in their Christian life to a place of being willing to be used by you in this way. And so we pray that you would freshly anoint us with your Holy Spirit. You would give us a fresh sensitivity to the prompting of your Holy Spirit related to this message, Lord, and when in doubt to share it anyway, Lord, with people. But give, give us what you are asking of us now by your Holy Spirit in, from this passage. We receive it from you, Lord. We want not a single person to live in the guilt of their sin one extra day because of our silence. And so we ask in accordance with your will, Lord. And so we know you've heard our prayer and we know that we've received what it is that we have asked of you. Continue to develop this wonderful, gigantic heart of yours for the lost, Lord, in this world. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen.